welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today is actually a very interesting podcast, and it is a little bit more specific to medical oncology and specific to lymphoma. We are going to talk about a rare type of lymphoma called peripheral T-cell lymphoma. As you know, on Healthcare Unfiltered, we have really fostered the idea of having debates, whether these debates about uh, policy issues or about specific clinical scenarios, we do like to bring various opinions and various ideas to the same topic. So at least you, the listeners, realize the importance of the debate, but more importantly, the importance of various opinions. Peripheral T-cell lymphoma is a form of lymphoma. It is not a B-cell lymphoma, it's a T-cell lymphoma, and it is not as common as B-cell lymphoma. And usually the disease behaves aggressively and presents in an aggressive manner. There has been a lot of debate in the medical literature and on social media what to do with patients with this disease once they receive chemotherapy and they achieve a remission. Do you watch these patients or do you consolidate with some form of transplantation, whether it is autologous stem cell transplantation or allogeneic stem cell transplantation? And you know what? I think you could do your research and you probably won't be able to find the prospective randomized controlled trial that conclusively answers your question. So we brought two lymphoma specialists, Dr. Barbara Pro from the uh, Northwestern University and Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Dr. Mehdi Hamadani from the MCW Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee to talk about the what do you do with the PTCL patients after they achieve a remission, and do you do transplant or no transplant, and if you do transplant, what type of transplant? Look, at the end of the day, we need to be humble and having humility in our lack of being conclusive uh, on the data should be embraced. Having said that, we have patients in front of us and despite the incomplete set of data that we would like to have, we still need to provide clinical recommendations to the patient and the family in front of us. And we need to do that to the best of our ability. Our guests today are going to share with you how they make these decisions in uncertain situations. How can they really counsel these patients in uncertain scenarios? Very important, and I appreciate you tuning in and listening to this fascinating episode of debating peripheral T-cell lymphoma on Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can find it everywhere from Apple Podcasts to Spotify and SoundCloud. Subscribe to it, rate it. Write a brief review, refer a colleague. I'm very grateful for your support. And without further ado, Drs. Pro and Hamadani on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. All right. Well, here we are on Healthcare Unfiltered. Um, actually, we're taping this probably the first day or the night before ASCO virtual meeting, and I have the pleasure of hosting uh, two wonderful colleagues that I respect immensely and I learn from all the time, whether on social media or off social media, I'll let them introduce themselves. But the idea of this podcast came from several papers that I saw 
in print as well as online, as well as a lot of robust dialogue on social media pertaining to a disease called peripheral T-cell lymphoma, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And the crux of the debate is what do we do with patients with this rare lymphoid disorder in terms of treatment? This episode might not apply to a lot of listeners. However, it should apply by, even if you don't see a lot of lymphoma patients, by seeing how two respected colleagues debate the issue, use the data and the science for the debate, and more importantly, trying to uh, realize that there are sometimes no wrong answers. Sometimes there are uncertain answers, unfortunately, and we still have to take care of patients despite the lack of perfect answers. Okay, doctors, um, uh, well, I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Barbara, you go first. Hi, my name is Barbara Pro, and I'm a lymphoma doctor at Northwestern in Chicago. Well, you're also a program director. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're being just very modest. Yeah. Um, do you want the titles? All of them, of course. Okay. So I'm a professor of medicine in the department in the Division of Hematology Oncology. I'm also the program director of the Hematology Oncology Fellowship and uh, director of the lymphoma program at Northwestern. And I think the first time I met you, Barbara, was you were still at MD Anderson, I believe, I swear. I think that's that's how long I've, uh, I've known you. But uh, the other thing is you're originally from Italy, right? Yes, I'm originally from Italy. So I did my medical school in Italy and my fellowship, my first fellowship, I should say, in Italy. Then I came to the U.S., did the internal medicine, and then a second fellowship at MD Anderson and stayed there uh, for 14 years and then moved a little bit around. And anytime I meet somebody from Europe, I have to ask them if they watch soccer and who they cheer for. I actually watch tennis. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's okay. All right. Maddie. We have a lot of good tennis players these days, so I'm a big fan. Excellent. Maddie. Awesome. Maddie Amadani. Uh, I'm Barbara's neighbor, like <laughs> maybe an hour and a half south in Milwaukee. So I'm a lymphoma doctor. I also see transplant patients. Administratively, I oversee our transplant and cell therapy program. Uh, Mehdi, do you, do you see only lymphoma patients that require transplant or you see general lymphoid malignancies as well? So for non-transplant, I just see lymphomas. But for transplant, it could be any disease, but it is predominantly lymphomas and myeloid disorders. So leukemia patient getting a transplant, I would see them. If it's a non-transplant patient, they would go to our myeloid malignancy group. And Barbara, I have to tell you something funny about uh, Mehdi. I don't know if you, you, I don't know. I know you're not on Twitter as much as me and him are, but I was like browsing Twitter and somebody tweeted he was giving grand rounds at University of Washington, I believe. And the title, well, you tell her, what was the title? Because that was, I was laughing so hard, I couldn't help it. So the title was, is this the beginning of the end of transplantation for DLBCL, so with a question mark. So yeah. I guess you were talking about CAR-T. Yeah, CAR-T and like, you know, like uh, sort of like the, the, at least certain types of transplants are less relevant now, right? We used to think about more allografts and heavily pretreated DLBCLs and that. But it was funny. Relevant now. It was funny, like a transplant or saying the beginning of the end of transplant, like that is pretty good. Okay, so today we're going to talk about PTCL or peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Um, Barbara, I just start with you, but can you maybe levels, you know, give us, uh, I don't know, one to two minutes of what are these, what is PTCL, just for listeners to know. 
So T-cell lymphoma, you know, are non-B-cell lymphoma, right? They're very rare. So because, you know, if you look at B-cell lymphoma, they represent uh, over 80% and sometimes 90% of all cases of lymphoma that we diagnose every year. And, uh, you know, Typically, T-cell lymphoma is only 10 to 15% of all cases. So it's extremely rare. And also the classification is, uh, is very challenging. I would say, you know, uh, typically these are diseases that involve uh, sites that are not lymph nodes. So, you know, typically they have more extranodal uh, involvement. And I think, uh, you know, just to focus, the most common types are uh, the so-called nodal type, which are not extranodal, and those are the PDCL not otherwise specified angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma and anaplastic cell lymphoma. These are the three most common types of T-cell lymphoma. Other entities are extremely rare, so it's uncommon to see patients uh, with those diseases in your practice. You both are obviously in, in very high-level academic centers, how difficult is this to diagnose in, I don't know, I mean, not MCW or Northwestern, right? I mean, lots of lymphomas are seen in, in community practices. Are they challenging? Are we doing better in diagnosing these? So they are challenging, right? You know, there is data out there. So International Peripheral T-Cell Lymphoma Project looked at concordance between even good pathologists for various histological subtypes. And if you look at their data, it's actually funny. The concordance is lower for rarer subtypes, right? So PTCL, angioinoblastic T-cell, which is challenging, and anaplastic, the concordance is lower. It's actually higher for more rare subtypes like extranasal NK T-cell lymphomas or gamma delta hepatosplenic T-cell lymphomas. But yeah, rarely you do see cases that are sort of like misclassified in the community and you come back. And in, in MCW, we have the benefit of having a very strong hematopathology group so occasionally you do, do see concordance, you know, like it's not uncommon to see a patient who has been diagnosed as diffuse large B-cell and it ends up being angioinoblastic T-cell lymphoma with a lot of proliferation of these uh, uh, immunoblasts uh, in the biopsy. So like, like once every three, four years, you would see an odd case like that. Uh, but it's not, obviously it's not very common. I don't know what uh, Dr. Pro's experience is. Yeah, I think uh, the, the diagnosis can be, as Medi said, very challenging. So very important that actually uh, slides are reviewed in a center where there is a lot of experience because otherwise, you know, uh, you know, some, some of these diseases can overlap with like anaplastic with Hodgkin lymphoma, sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish or a large B-cell lymphoma CD30 positive. Uh, so I think, uh, again, and now we know a little bit better uh, how to classify, for example, even PTCL, some of these PTCL cases behave at least genetically. They have features that are very common with angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma. And we are now starting to understand that they should be treated as such. So there are all these nuances. That's why it's, I think it's very important that slides are reviewed by an expert in pathologist and you know, in a center where they see cases. Otherwise, it, it's really hard. Maybe my last question on diagnosis is that when you diagnose these, I mean, are, we, are you just relying mainly on flow cytometry and the experience, the morphology and so forth? Is there any 
you know, anything pathognomonic, chromosomal abnormal, anything that will say, aha, uh -huh, well, this is just indisputable or anything you can shed some light on that? I want to say that actually, believe it or not, clinical presentation in T-cell lymphoma is more important than any other type of lymphoma. You know, most of the time, and I know Medi will agree with me, you need to call the pathologist and say, this is how this patient presented. They have like a sinus lesion, you know, like, and, uh, you know, you know, the, the ethnicity is important, you know, how they present the symptoms and the type of adenopathy, if it's bulky, if it's non-bulky, you know, whether or not, again, ethnicity, um, because of uh, some of these uh, diseases are associated with TBB, HTLB1 and 2. So clinical features are very important. And I think we still rely very heavily on immunohistochemistry. Unfortunately, as you know, there are not many uh, genetic abnormality that are peculiar or unique to T-cell lymphoma with a few exceptions, the translocation 2 and 5 for ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma, the strong CD30 positivity in anaplastic large cell lymphoma, the DASP-22 now in ALK-negative anaplastic large cell lymphoma. But with few exceptions, we really don't have uh, uh, very unique molecular uh, markers in this disease. And that's why it's so challenging. Mehdi, I mean, it goes without saying, uh, a patient is diagnosed with this type of lymphoma, chemotherapy is the, is the approach. Is there a debate? I know we're going to debate the consolidation after chemotherapy, but before we get there, is there a debate into the best chemotherapy regimen in terms of what to give? Um, any thoughts there? So I, I assume you're sort of like focusing on these nodal majority cell lymphomas, right? So the cohort of PTCL, not otherwise specified, right. AITL, right. anaplastic large cells. So, so the, top four, the top four, I would say, the AITL, ALK positive, ALK negative, and PTCL, yes. NOS. So yeah, I think like there is obviously, I think the easiest to pick is probably anaplastic large cells, right? So I think there, the data of, sort of CHP with brentuximab bedotin is very strong. It's very convincing that there is clearly a benefit for those patients with adding brentuximab bedotin to anthracycline backbone. Whether that benefit extrapolates to angiomyoblastic T-cell lymphomas and PTCL not otherwise specified is debatable, but if your patient has a lot of expression of CD30, it's, I think, reasonable to add, but the counter argument is that there is obviously older data that compared CHOP with addition of a to the CHOP, so to the CHOP backbone, and there is a signal of benefit in that setting. So if you're talking about a sort of a difficult subgroup of angioblastic T-cell lymphoma patients where people question the benefit of routinely adding brentuximab bedotin, so in those patients, you can ask a question, is CHOP going to provide you the same mileage that CHP and brentuximab bedotin is going to provide? And uh, I, I really don't know the answer in that setting. But uh, we, when we see newly diagnosed PTCL patients who are not anaplastic, anaplastics are almost always high CD30 positive. So that's a no-brainer. But in other subtypes, we do look at the degree of expression of CD30. And if, if our angioblastic happens to express a lot of CD30, which they typically don't, by the way, uh, then I think you can make an argument to go with the CHP uh, brentuximab bedotin 
option or in a younger patient, CHOEP is, I think, still reasonable. Uh, CHOEP becomes harder if your patient is older, right? So it's it's not a very easy regimen for patients above the age of 65, 70, especially those with comorbidities. So Barbara, what I heard Medi saying is the options are CHOP, mm-hmm. CHOP plus etoposide, or CHP plus brintuximab. These are the three induction regimens that you are going to choose from. Is that about right? Like, I mean, and, and then depends on what you're seeing, who you're seeing, you're going to make the determination one or the other? That's right. I mean, I think these are the backbone. So CHOP, CHOEP in a younger patient, uh, there is definitely benefit of adding a toposide in L-positive anaplastic large lymphoma. A study from Germany showed that actually uh, that's where the most benefit was seen. So in a young patient with L-positive anaplastic large lymphoma, I tend to use a toposide a lot. Older patients, we try to use CHOP or CHP plus brentuximab if they are CD30 positive. Does it matter how positive they are, CD30? So, yeah, that's still very controversial, as you know, in the Echelon 2 study that proved that CHP MBV is superior to CHOP, the cutoff was 10%. But we know that in, uh, for example, in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, uh, the Alcanza study, uh, where they actually had multiple biopsy uh, for patient with uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, there was really no correlation between uh, response and uh, a rate of the CD30 positivity. So you could argue that any positivity will be sufficient to get uh, a response. I think you still have to have at least, I don't know, 5% or so. I think if you have less than 1% or negative, I'm not sure uh, I would use it. All right, so we do the chemotherapy. Why why is there a question about transplant to start with, right? Like how, help listeners understand why are we even having this debate? I mean, like, why do I even do consolidation? Why can't I just do chemotherapy and finish and, and monitor? What was the, is there a philosophical approach behind this? No, it's just that the, the prognosis of patients with peripheral T-cell lymphoma to date remains very poor. So if you look at the historical data, and I'm not sure we are really doing any better, maybe a little bit better, but historical data shows a a progression-free survival of five years in the range of 20 to 30%. And the overall survival is almost identical, meaning that those patients who relapse, unfortunately, don't have many effective options. So one, you know, uh, idea was, uh, you know, the rationale was, uh, well, what if we consolidate patients who are responding to induction chemotherapy with an autotransplant, will that improve outcome? And so that was one of the strategies to try to improve the outcome in a disease that historically has such a bad prognosis. And Mehdi, when we, whenever we talk transplant, we are talking either auto or allo, auto being from yourself, allo being from somebody else. So the choices are after you give chemotherapy, either you do nothing, either you do auto-transplant or you do allotransplant or you do some form of maintenance chemotherapy if it exists. I mean, these are really the four choices. Mm-hmm. So what does the field of lymphoma feel about this? Like, t- take us through the transplant piece to try to understand where the controversy is. Uh, you're a transplanter, so I presume you transplant everyone as long as they have a pulse, right? Yeah, so that's the theory, right, that... Uh... 
if you're a monkey, if you give me a banana, I'm going to eat it, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> so, and hopefully we don't do that, right? So, and that's, I think that's why I strongly believe that, you know, like that old model of transplanters doing transplant and not having a disease is not a good model because that's where this monkey and banana analogy comes in, right? So seeing your own disease, in my case, it's lymphoma, it's important because you need to understand what the alternative options are. And, you know, the big problem with transplant data is, and I hopefully Dr. Pro will agree, is that it's sort of a self-selection when we think about consolidations. We are looking at the good players, right? So you're looking at patients who, first of all, were able to finish induction therapies. Some patients can't. And then they were able to achieve a remission. And then they have healthy enough marrow to get stem cells collected. So, so you're looking at the best of the best patients. So... And I think that's an area where you really need randomized data to show benefit, and we don't have that data. So in the absence of such data, you know, sometimes you see a patient in remission who is not a candidate for transplant because of comorbidities or really advanced aged. We're not talking about those patients. So let's say we are talking about an otherwise healthy and fit patient, and I think we really need to look at the biology of the disease, right? So if you look at the outcomes of ALK positive anaplastics who are in a PET negative CR, they do fine. You know, their, their long-term progression-free survival is actually excellent. So I, I don't think it makes sense to transplant those patients. Barbara mentioned these uh, DUST22 rearranged anaplastic large cell lymphomas were ALK negative. They actually do really good too. Uh, so if I happen to see a health negative patients with just 22 rearrangement, I think it's hard to make a case of routinely transplanting every single patient. So, but in certain histologies, if you're ALK negative and you're TP, TP63 rearranged, those do very poorly. And if those patients are in a CR, I think you should at least discuss the risks and benefits honestly with the patient. We, When I talk to a patient about transplant, I acknowledge that my recommendation, if we are recommending transplant, is not based on high-quality data. It's just based on a simple principle that if routine doses of chemotherapy benefited you, maybe the high-dose chemotherapy will push your remission into a deeper state. So I think these are some of the considerations you have to keep in mind. You have to see how good the remission of the patient is, how fit they are, what their genomic profile is. For subsets where genomic profiles are available, and then you have to look at the remission they have achieved, right? So if you just flip the script and you're talking about an elk negative anaplastic who's in a partial remission, very good partial remission at the end of the treatment, and they're otherwise fit, there is a chance that high-dose therapy can convert their PR into a CR. Is it a reasonable thing to think about? I would think so, yes. But again, I think we, we should always keep it in mind that whether I recommend transplant for a certain patient or I don't, my, my practice is not based on high quality data. Now, there are certain circumstances where I still do allotransplants in first remission, mostly based on experience and my bias. And, you know, like my, I tell my fellows if I see an angiomyoplastic T cell lymphoma patient in first CR and if they're otherwise fit and healthy, I, I do talk about transplant and I, do a lot of those even donor transplants in CR1. And I tell my fellows, I've never seen an angioneoblastic T-cell lymphoma relapse after an ELO. 
But, 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 me, but, but Mehdi, from listening to you, and Barbara, please chime in here. I want to go back to the basics. Are there any prospective, randomized, controlled trial at all to suggest that any form of transplantation is better than no transplantation? So we don't have any randomized trial that has compared transplant versus observation. There are single-arm prospective studies that have looked at high-dose therapy consolidation, and they compared those patients with patients who didn't undergo transplant, and those were refractory patients. Of course, transplant looks really good. But there is, to my knowledge, there is no randomized study that has compared transplantation versus no transplantation. There is one study that has compared auto versus allo, but that's not what we are talking about. But you know, I mean, Barbara, the, the pushback that a lot of, and, and you know, you're supposed to debate against the transplant, by the yes. way, because the pushback is, well, there is no study and there are other diseases in lymphoma where prospective studies were completed. You know, obviously they're larger in percentage, BLBCL and so forth, diffuse large B cell lymphoma where transplant did not, for largely did not really show bene beneficial. Yeah. So, you know, why, yes. with no RCTs, why do it? Period. So, yeah, the major problem in T-cell lymphoma, as you know, as Medi just mentioned, is that they are typically not chemosensitive diseases, right? So, I mean, the old rationale about using higher doses of chemotherapy is that you have to have a chemosensitive disease. As Medi mentioned, there is no randomized study. So even in the Nordic study, which was the very first study published of a decent size uh, that show, you know, where patients were treated with CHOP or CHOEP and then transplanted. One third of the patient never made it to transplant. And then over 20% of the patient progressed after transplant. So you do the math. And the median age of the patient was 57. So much younger patients, you know. If we think that the PTCLNOS and angiomyoblastic T-cell lymphoma now are the most common subtypes, those are diseases of older patients, patients who typically are not eligible for transplant. And, you know, I also want to remind you both that, you know, there was a study that was published, granted is a retrospective review of all patients that treated the many academic institutions across the country, only 10% of patients with PTCL, PTCL actually undergo consolidation with transplant. This is major institution in Boston, New York, and all of that. So, you know, just 10% of patients. You're not talking about Asia. You're talking about the US. So there is a reason for that, right? Patients cannot get a transplant. So when you have the data about favoring transplant, those, as Mandy mentioned, those are really because we cherry pick the best patient, the patient who probably are fit, young, have achieved the CR. So, but that's just a minority. So, yeah, I mean, Barbara's point is well taken. I mean, some of the trials that you will show, which albeit it's retrospective analysis comparing to historical control, maybe they're cherry picking because you're not gonna take transplant, everyone to transplant unless they have chemosensitive disease. I, I guess I'm trying to think, if I have 10 lymphoma experts like yourselves today, and I ask the question and I give them a case, all of you get the same case. Do you think we'll get almost unified answer? We get like 11 different answers. Depends on the case, right? If it's a 
L-positive anaplastic, you'll probably get similar answers, if not identical answers, but... No one would transplant? Most people wouldn't in a patient for in a CR, right? So uh, right. I don't think that's a reasonable approach. And so, that's a transplanter saying that. So. I'm struggling with the idea of making decisions based on a gestalt feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like a, it's, it's a tough one, right? Um, uh, I mean, I've taken care of many T-cell lymphoma patients myself before I left academic practice. And, and I was like you, I, you know, a young patient fit who gets CR, I take them to auto transplant, uh, you know, just because of the sense that they will do better. Um, but I have no idea if I was doing better or not. So that's, that's, that's the main limitation we have, right? So the best thing we have is there is a observational registry where a lot of academic centers participated for T-cell lymphomas. So in that registry, they looked at patients who were getting routine standard of care treatment. Some people got transplanted, some didn't. And they did a matched analysis of patients who were getting transplanted versus not. And there is a hint of a benefit, right? Uh, but again, those analyses have limitations, you know, like, again, they can't adjust for why Barbara decided not to transplant somebody and I decided to. Uh, that physician and center practice, you can't adjust for in any analysis, but there is a hint of a benefit there. Like, you know, like, honestly speaking, I'm not a huge fan and I'm supposed to argue in favor of auto transplant for T-cell lymphomas, but... Uh, you know, like it's not a treatment for every single patient. We do select good patients. Uh, the procedure is obviously much safer than what it was 15 years ago. In good centers, that procedure-related mortality of auto-transplant should be under 1% at one year, right? So the toxicity concerns are gone. The main concern is whether you benefit from the procedure. So and if I see a peripheral T-cell lymphoma patient with a high PIT score, let's say their score is 4, they're predicted three-year progression-free survival is going to be under 30%, and that patient is lucky enough to be in a remission and is otherwise perfectly fit. Would I consider a transplant in that patient? Yeah, I would at least discuss the pros and cons and let the patient make a decision. And, you know, surprisingly, you know, patients, when you when you give them, give them the options openly, some decide to proceed, some don't, right? So... Barbara, why can't we have a prospective randomized control trial and just settle, settle the, the case? It seems to me, I mean, I realize it's tough, believe me, but, you know, we have some randomized control in adrenal cancers, for goodness sake. Like, we should be able to do that. Yeah, I actually presented a proposal to ECOG many, many years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, to do a randomized study. And uh, unfortunately, you know, there was uh, no consensus uh, that people will randomize their patient to transplant versus no transplant, because some of the, our colleagues were strong believers in transplant, but others were totally against it. So they will not be able to, you know, participate in a study like that. So we didn't have a consensus and was never done through the cooperative group. And I don't think it will never will ever be done. Even in Europe, where they really did most of the study in T-cell lymphoma, but they never were able to do a randomized study with the exception of the latest published study where they randomized patients not to chemo versus chemo plus autotransplant, but to auto versus transplant, which actually was much harder to do. It's fascinating, it's fascinating that the reason we can't do the trial is the 
preconceived notion that we know the absolutely, answer. Absolutely, absolutely. That's and it's, it might be, it might be, it might be changing, right? So we recently finished every seventh year when the BMTCTN's network grant is going to be renewed. We do a state of the science symposium. So I was part of the lymphoma committee. So there is a concept that is at least has some traction that we need to do a randomized trial for elk negative not elk negative, CD30 negative, peripheral T-cell lymphomas. So I believe Craig Sauter from Memorial and Jacob Savoda from University of Pennsylvania presented that idea. And it has gone to sort of like the cooperative group committees for at least feedback. So, you know, like if if we can we'll see. put Alliance and ECOG and SWOG and BMTCTN together, it's a study that is doable. And I would have no concerns randomizing a patient on such a trial, it hopefully will give us the answer once and for all. Mehdi, you mentioned something. I want to just try to address this in a few minutes. So when you decide on transplant, you, you did confess that you're not a big fan of the autotransplant. So I was inferring that you're probably a bigger fan of the allotransplant. For some diseases. For some, But for this disease, assuming you have a young patient, right, and you're seeing that patient um, recognizing the allotransplant, you need a donor, all that stuff. But when do you decide on the allotransplant? Because now you have probably even much, <laughs> way less data than, uh, than the other one, right? Oh, absolutely. So upfront, it's obviously tough, right? So once you relapse and you're young and fit, I think most people will not argue that you should consider allotransplant, right? There in the relapse refractory setting, there is at least good quality registry data available to support the use of allotransplant. In the frontline setting, I think the only place where I think about it is angioplastic T-cell lymphomas. For whatever reason, you know, like that has been my practice for a long time, partly because a number of angioplastic T-cell lymphomas typically don't go into a CR, right? Negative scans, negative marrow, they may have disease left over. So if I have an angioplastic T-cell lymphoma that is either primary refractory or is not in a true complete remission, we routinely allograft them in first remission. And, you know, like we have probably, and, you know, technically these are primary refractory patients. They are chemosensitive. They have achieved a remission, but they have residual disease left over. And in our center over the last eight years, we have probably done over 10 such patients with primary refractory disease, not a single patient has relapsed. And if you look at even the CIBMTR data that my one of my fellows published a few years ago in that CR1 or these primary refractory patients with sensitive disease, their relapse risk is about 15%. So it's very low if you don't kill the patient with, with the procedure-related mortality, that's the key. The more tricky situation is these angioplastic T-cell lymphomas who are in CR1 or true CR, scans are negative and PET is negative. There we have a discussion with the patient and you know some, some of our historical argument has been that if these patients relapse, it's very hard to put them back in remission. So you may get one shot at curing those patients. Now the, these patients have certain mutations that we have recognized over the years. They are TED2 mutated off, often and they have responses to hypomethylating agents. So that argument is weaker now. So for a CR1 patient, I think it's a it's a tougher argument in 2021, but otherwise a patient who's responding, but with residual disease after frontline therapy, you know, allotransplant has profound 
GVL effects in angioplastic T-cell lymphoma. So we recently collaborated with EBMT. So we have a data set of about almost 2,000 patients with PTCL, angioplastic T-cell lymphoma, and anaplastic large-cell lymphoma that is under peer review right now. And if you look at angioplastic T-cell lymphoma, their hazard ratios of relapsing after an allotransplant is almost half of what PTCL gives you. So these patients are very, very sensitive to GVL effects. And if you look at their relapse risk, if they don't relapse in the first year, they don't relapse. They have sort of like relapse curves are completely flat. But the key is, you know, like obviously allotransplant comes with substantial non-relapse mortality, right? So I'm, I'm not professing that for any given center, right? So in our group, we look at our transplant outcomes obsessively. I can say that we look at our allotransplant outcomes in lymphomas over the last years are NRM is 5%, right? So it's like substantially under 10%. So in good centers, which have sort of their outcomes figured out, it's a useful tool. I think I would be crazy to say that it is standard of care and everybody must do it, but you, in allotransplant, you have to look at your center's data, right? And those data are sort of like publicly available. If, you know, if your center outcomes are good, if you have a good team in an appropriate patient, it's a useful tool. But you see, Chadi, the problem is that there are many if, right? If your center is good, if your outcomes are good. So even the recent published study, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe, you know, where they randomized Halo versus Odo in Germany, you know, these are major uh, institutions in Germany, their treatment-related mortality was over 30%. And I think like my criticism for the study is it went on forever and they randomized barely 60 patients, right? Or in that ballpark, maybe there were 80 patients. And the other thing is they they were giving myeloblative conditionings, which is sort of the, the preferred regimen in Germany. Uh, but the only thing you buy with myeloblative conditionings in lymphomas is transplant-related mortality. Um, so we recently had a paper come out in JAMA Org about a year ago where we looked at these conditioning regimens for non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And if you increase your conditioning, the only thing you buy is non-relapse mortality. Your relapse rates are not effective. We are working on a manuscript that is looking specifically at T-cell lymphomas, myeloblative versus reduced intensity conditioning. Even in refractory patients, you get nothing out of ablating your patients except increasing the non-relapse mortality. So I think that is one potential criticism for the, for the randomized German study. I wish they had a reduced intensity option on the trial and that would have been interesting to see how that would have affected the non-relapse mortality rates because what's interesting on their study is not a single allo patient relapsed, right? Yes. But the lack of difference was coming from substantial non-relapse mortality, which I suspect the intense conditioning they used contributed to. One of the things I want to definitely bring and surface, because I feel personally passionate about, and I presume some of my listeners would, when we look at outcomes by center, oftentimes uh, we look at overall survival, you know, day 30, day 100, day 180, day one year mortality and treatment-related mortality. Obviously, we look at, I presume, some of the GVHD metrics and things like that. But how about quality of life? I mean, I really think, um, and maybe I've been traumatized at least. I, I know I, I'm not, a, I didn't really do allotransplant. I took care of my own autotransplant, but that's different, right? Do you look, Mehdi and Barbara, in your own centers about 
quality of life, PROs. I mean, do are the patients depression, psychosocial issues, suicide? Um, I mean, there's so many things that you just can't capture by telling me that 60% of my patients are alive at one year. How, how alive are they? Well, I think this is a very good point, uh, Chadi. And unfortunately, as you know, most of the studies have not captured this data. So it's only, you know, your personal experience dealing with uh, uh, transplant complication. But, you know, you can claim, uh, you know, that uh, quality of life is affected because, you know, you don't have those large numbers, right? And sometimes, you know, when you see a patient who has a poor quality of life, usually, you know, you remember that patient more than other, other patients, right? So I think, you know, unfortunately, we have not captured that data. But the other thing I want to mention is this is an aggressive disease. So, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we kind of have a better tolerance for things like quality of life because, you know, it, this is a disease very aggressive and most most of the time fatal. So, you know, uh, sometimes if I tell my patient this could be the complication, they will say, okay, I'll go for it no matter what, because I don't have an alternative. Now, if you have more effective treatment, and I think now, you know, there are many emerging and novel therapies that seem to be very effective with durable responses over time, I think, you know, then you, you can weight benefit the risk of both, both strategies. But, you know, when you don't have that, you know, it's really hard for patients not to go for it, even if it's going to affect their quality of life. Do you agree, Mehdi? Yeah, like I... You know, like for most settings, we don't have good quality of life data, right? So CIBMTR recently started collecting PROs on the registry, but, you know, even if they collect it, they don't have a, or we don't have a non-transplant comparator to see if it is better. But since, you know, like since the transplant platform is similar, whether you are transplanting for lymphoma or MBS, it's at the end of the day, it's the same platform. So recently, uh, BMTCTN is about to publish the results of transplant versus no transplant study for MDS patients. And it shows a survival benefit for MDS patients. I, I believe the paper is coming out in JCO very soon. And that study had built-in quality of life questions. And when you'll see the data, it favors uh, transplantation in MDS patients undergoing transplant. So can you extrapolate those patients' data to lymphoma patients? You arguably maybe with some limitations, but I'll tell you some real life experience, right? So since I do allotransplant, I do see the back thing, right? Patients who are cured and they have horrendous graft versus host disease. So I'm a big fan of these remorse analysis, right? You've never officially done one, but my patients with really bad GVHT, I often ask them, I said, knowing what you know now, would you do it again, right? So you know, patients with severe lung graft versus host disease on oxygen, I've asked my patients, if you knew that extent, would you have done transplant again? And it's always a mixed answer. There are some patients who will say, hey, doc, I'm alive. I'm grateful to be alive, right? And I have had patients said, yes, if I knew it, there was absolutely no way I was doing transplant. And when they say that you feel horrible, and that's why, you know, like when I, when I talk to my patients about transplant, you know, like my message to the fellows and my team is, you know, when you tell patients about transplant, you, you have to tell the patients that the benefits are real, but so are the risks. Right? I like, have to tell you, this is, this would be a very good research project for a fellow. 
no, oh, no yeah. I would say uh, I would strongly recommend to, you know, you build like a 20 question surveys and you do a scale from one to five mm-hmm. and you do that for about two, 300 patients with a couple of institutions. Uh, this would be a very small, you know, paper, but it's really important. And I, and I do think I agree with you. Sometimes asking these questions are critical, but let me let me maybe ask a provocative question. And I know um, you know I'm not going to keep you for long because I realize that probably there will be there will never be correct or wrong answers. But I'm going to give you a hypothetical scenario: a 50 year old man, completely healthy, no comorbidities whatsoever, and this person has PTCL. He gets treated in a community practice, not a large uh, academic center with CHOP plus etoposide. He attains a complete remission and his doctor recommends observation. And he says, you are in complete remission. Uh, I'm not, I don't recommend allogeneic transplant. I don't recommend autologous transplant. Do you think this doctor is wrong? Because I struggle with the idea to let the patients decide. I have to tell you, I know we do all this shared decision-making. Trust me, I've even done a podcast on it. And I've talked to patients about it. And it's honestly, it's a very, it's, um, it's tough. It's like a asymmetric information. I mean, how is a patient going to decide auto versus allo versus nothing? It's, in, you know, we can't even decide. And we've done all of the training. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to put that on the patient, don't you think? It's like, like, you know, like, honestly, when we even let the patient decide, the patient, they do see our bias, right? So, you know, if I was seeing this patient and this patient says, like, peripheral T-cell lymphoma prognostic score or the PET score is very low, I'll be biased towards watching him maybe. But if the score was high, I, I may say something that may push the patient <laughs> in one direction because I still have my bias, right? So. Yes. And, and, you know, like this is a discussion I have with my leukemia non-transplant team all the time. They say, I talked with the patient, they don't want to do it. And I said, well, if I talked with it, they might do it. Yeah, you're a good right? salesman. So yeah, like, no, it's like it's, and yeah, like it's, you know, like patients are real individuals and they do understand our biases as well. And, you know, that's why this topic is so tough. You know, we just can't be dogmatic about it, right? So it's like, one of my mentors used to say, I was arguing with him because I, you can tell me I'm not a huge fan of autotransplant and T-cell lymphomas. And he said, well, how do you know? If you know it doesn't benefit, how do you know it doesn't benefit? And either way, we don't know, right? So, and you know, that's why it's sort of like, you have to look at the patient, you have to look at their remission, you have to look at their risk score and then make a judgment call. Barbara, in relapse, if you have a relapsed PTCL who has not done any transplant, so just chemotherapy observation and they relapse, I know, 18 months later, do you, can you still do auto transplant or do you think this should be going to an allo transplant? I think, again, depends on the situation, depends on, you know, the availability of donors, as you know, you know, you have to take into consideration everything, comorbidities, as Maddie said, you know, you can do now allotransplant in older patients if you don't do a myeloablative uh, regimen, so I think we have many options, now we have the option of an allotransplant, so you don't have to have a, a completely matched donor to do transplant. 
I think, you know, depends. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the data with auto in uh, CR2 is also not, I think it's very similar to ALO in, uh, in all comers. So of course, there are situations where you would prefer an ALO. I agree with Dr. Admadani, you know, in angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, uh, I think there is plenty of evidence that ALO transplant is better than auto transplant. But, you know, the median age of angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma uh, you know, today it is like 74, 75 years old. So they may not be candidates. So I think it depends on the situation. So I would say I would do uh, an alloy if possible, but I will not discount an auto if the alloy is not possible. Before I ask you for concluding remarks, I really want to spend a few minutes on something that's a little bit disturbing, but I do think it's important for us to, to talk about and I think you started, Barbara, with this, or Mehdi, I forgot to start with this, but the outcome of the PTCL over the past two decades appear, appear similar to 20 years ago with minor improvement you mentioned, right, in terms of the PFS. And, and you said there's, the progress has not been tremendous in this disease, very little improvement. So if I take away my academic hat, I, I pretend I know nothing about lymphoma, I would say... Well, that tells me that whatever you've been doing in the past 20 years has not really translated into a population level improvement. So you should do something different, whether it's auto, allo, the chemotherapy. So it's very disturbing, I guess, that nothing has improved over two decades. Can you comment on that? Like, why have we not seen any improvement? I mean, we, you know, you would think we should, no? Yeah, I can start with that. So we made many mistakes. We were treating T-cell lymphoma like B-cell lymphoma. And then we moved away from that and we were treating T-cell lymphoma regardless of histology with the same type of approach. That's totally wrong. T-cell lymphomas are completely different diseases and we are starting identifying targets and see what's happening in anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So I think the addition of brentuximab adodin, frontline salvage therapy, therapy or salvage therapy relapse setting has made a huge, huge, I think, uh, improvement in, in outcomes. Uh, we have seen that with the Echelon 2 study. And I think uh, the next, uh, you will see the next, I think, major breakthrough will be using epigenetic modifiers in patients with angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma or PDCLNOS that resemble angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma. PI3 kinase inhibitors, I think, are probably uh, one of the most active agents in PDCL, but we, again, we have to identify the patient who can benefit the most from these approaches. And I think that has been the struggle in T-cell lymphoma. I think ALK inhibitors, we never talk about this because it mainly, mainly applies to pediatric patients. ALK inhibitors, uh, you have seen the study recently published uh, with uh, ALK inhibitors in addition to chemotherapy in the frontline therapy of ALK-positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma, an overall survival curve of 97%. So again, the addition of ALK inhibitors to frontline therapy has made a huge impact in our positive anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And hopefully uh, we can reproduce that in the adult population. 
So I think uh, we have made many prog a lot of progress in, in, in T cell lymphoma. Still, the road is uh, very long. Uh, but uh, I think understanding more the biology and uh, targeting therapy to specific subtypes, I think is going to be key uh, in this disease. Maddie, any can't we do CAR-T for T-cell lymphomas? Oh, we can, right? So just to add to what Barbara was saying, right? So I'm, I'm going to put a plug for how transplant has gotten better over time, right? So... Sonali Smith in University of Chicago published registry outcomes about 10 years ago. So in her analysis, the five-year cure rate with allotransplant for T-cell lymphomas was about 35%. And the treatment-related mortality was also 30%. So you were curing one out of three patients and killing one out of three patients. Our paper that is under review right now is a newer analysis. It has 30% of the patients are above the age of 65, which were excluded from Sony's paper. And now the five-year survival is close to 60%, double of what it was 10 years ago. And the treatment-related mortality is 15%, half of what it was. So we have made progress. So for some set of patients, I think it's not all gloom and doom. Uh, but CAR T-cells, yes, they're, you know, they're, they're multiple CAR T-cell platforms that are under development. Legend has a CAR platform that is targeting CD4. Autolus has a very interesting, which is a European company, which is looking at uh, variations of TCR beta chains. So TCR beta chains, just like kappa lambda light chains on B cells, have two variations, TCR beta 1 and beta 2. So they are targeting one of the TCR beta chains. And the concept there is that you can give CAR and kill half of the T cells, not every single T cell, and then salvage your patients and not cause a lot of T cell aplasia, which is obviously not compatible with life. So there's like sort of CAR T cells are obviously in early development. And you know, there, there's obviously early reports of early responses with these, at least with the autolysis product. So they, they are coming. And then obviously the CD30 positive CAR has obviously shown responses in anaplastics and Hodgkin patients. So the, these studies are behind B cells, like T cell is behind B cells, but they're coming. And some of those studies are going to be open in Chicago as well as in Milwaukee. Well, you've been, uh, both of you have been just wonderful. I think, um... If anything, uh, hopefully listeners have learned a lot about this disease, have learned a lot about the uncertainty in making decisions. And you know what? That's okay. I think we can't, not everything is black and white in medicine. And I think that's probably the take-home message. Yeah, I think the take-home message is if you give me or Barbara a banana, we might not eat it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's, you know what, you can't finish on a better note than this. So um, I really appreciate you both being with us and uh, discussing this uh, tough disease and, and the controversy. And um, I'd love to have you again in, in, in a few more months and we talk about something else. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Our pleasure sir. Maybe yeah. CAR-T, CAR-T, CAR-T. We need to do more CAR-T. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening and thank you for your support. I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to this really wonderful debate on peripheral T-cell lymphoma and whether we use transplant or no transplant as consolidation therapy. Let me know what you think about this episode and other episodes by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. 
You can also send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com and check out my website, shadinabhan.com, and let me know what you think. Check out all of the other features on the website. I really appreciate your support, and I would like to utilize and apply your opinion and suggestions on the podcast to make sure we can fulfill our end of the bargain. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, watch the show on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, rate and refer colleagues and friends to the show. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with um, a couple of sayings of Winston Churchill. Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. Another one that I really love, and I believe it applies to this episode. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Until next time, take care.